I'll give you the numbers, 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. All right. Anyway, what I was saying during the part you didn't hear was I was basically reminding, pointing out the fact that we have massive flooding all over eastern Ontario and that it is my opinion that part of the reason is we weren't prepared for this from a flood control point of view, that somebody dropped the ball somewhere. So that's one thing. The other thing is we spend untold mountains of treasure, untold mountains of treasure to fight a nebulous might happen, maybe happen 80 years in the future thing called global warming. So for the sake of the discussion, let's say for a moment that global warming's real. I don't believe for a second that we're responsible for it. I'm not going to entertain that idea, but just the idea that global warming is a problem. All right. Would it make sense to you, and I'm looking for your input here, now that you can hear me, <laughs> wouldn't it make more sense to take those billions of dollars and do things like Put in proper flood control measures, making sure the townships, which are the primary first-line defense against flooding, or any natural disaster for that matter, have the resources they need, the equipment, the sandbags, the stores of sand, whatever it takes, the machinery, to help people within their jurisdictions when things like this happen. If you could take $5 billion and sink it in the carbon credit trading program, Or take $5 billion and split it up amongst a bunch of uh, townships and say, go get whatever you need, whether it be generators to have on standby, whether it be, uh, you know, an extra supply uh, of, you know, several buildings full of of sand for sandbags and a a stash of 150,000 sandbags or whatever it is, whatever you think that you need to deal with flooding or, God forbid, fires or whatever natural disaster comes along. Because that's part of your primary responsibility anyway, is to help people at times like that. Because when you talk about the little townships, like, as an example, Killaloo, KHR, Killaloo, Haggerty Richards, they have very limited means to deal with this kind of stuff. They're a small township. They only have about a dozen employees. You know, it's not like you have the city of Ottawa with 18,000 people working for it. Okay, and a billion-dollar budget. Now, they also have a lot more people to try to help in time of crisis. I get that. But the point is, here we have, we're wasting incalculable amounts of money on something that is so nebulous with no results to show for it. Like when you spend money on global warming, can you point to the uh, emergency supplies that are standing by uh, for global warming? No, there aren't any. Because that's not how you, according to the the elites, that's not how you fight it. You fight it by taxing people. You fight it by digging deeper into their pockets. You fight it with with cap and trade. And you fight it with shifting paper from one company to another in the carbon credit trading scam. Okay, that's how you fight it. You don't do this stuff like actually having the raw materials necessary to fight a flood in Gatineau. Who cares about that? Those people shouldn't live in a water course anyway, which is their attitude. And the people out down there in Combermere, ah, who cares? They're just sim- simple con- country gomers and bumpkins. Nobody cares about them. Now, if it was me, 
guess where I'd spend it? And to me, it just makes so much more sense. If you're going to fight something, fight something you can win. Fight something you stand a chance at. Fight something that matters. People's lives and livelihoods matter, no matter where they live. And now when you see this, because this affects urban residents as well. If, you've got a, uh, if you're living on the banks of the Rideau River inside the city of Ottawa, and that river rises to the point it comes over its banks, it's going to have an impact on you in a big hurry. And it won't matter whether you live in the country or in, in downtown. So, I don't know. That's just my attitude about it. What do you think? 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. I'm just tired of wasting money on absolute nonsense. Utter nonsense. It drives me crazy. All right. Now, we have another topic here I want to get to. I had somebody, and I'm not going to tell you who it is yet, uh, send me what is called uh, their economic plan. Okay? And it is a mem- one of the members of the leadership race. And I want to share just I, – I dug into it a little bit. And this is their economic plan um, covering everything from public spending to taxes and so on. And I want to share – the heart of it with you, I, I cut and pasted a lot because it's too long a document just to read itself. But it goes into, into great detail. So what I want, and I've looked at a bunch of them tonight, uh, getting ready for the show. I looked at Aaron O'Toole and I looked at, uh, you know, all the, excuse me, all the leaders' programs. And many of them are have bullet points, but not a lot of detail. This one's different. There's a fair amount of detail in this. Now, no plan is perfect. But you got to start somewhere. So there are things about this you'll probably go, hmm, I don't know, because I did the same thing. But overall, let me tell, tell me what your impression is. So here, here we go. All right, under the heading, the guiding principle. The guiding principle is that Canada must match or better U.S. competitiveness on taxes, regulation, and productivity, energy investment, infrastructure, and on finding new investors, investors and trade opportunities. In the area of public spending, Privatize the CBC and end its taxpayer-funded subsidies. End corporate welfare, including special grants, direct subsidies, or loan guarantees, and immediately launch a review panel tasked with bringing forward a plan for the privatization of all Crown corporations to benefit Canadian taxpayers. That made me stop, and I I never took the the opportunity. I haven't had a chance um, to actually look up how many Crown corporations there are left. Not that many, but... Okay, so that's that. Uh, On taxes, eliminate capital gains taxes. Zero. I really like that. Um, End the war on gas, oil, and coal. No carbon tax, no carbon pricing, no cap and trade. Reduce the base rate of federal personal income tax from 20.5% to 15% of taxable income of $50,000 or less and reduce the marginal rates. Reduce the federal corporate income tax uh, to, from 15 to 9%. Tax credits for donations to registered charities will match those the federal, for federal political donations up to the maximum political donation tax credit. On the, in the area of trade, renew a Canada-U.S. softwood lumber agreement that benefits both Canadian producers and their customers in the U.S., construction industry, and new home buyers in the United States. Seek new trade deals with the U.K., New Zealand, and Australia, as well as implementation of the Canada-Europe trade, uh, EU trade agreement. 
strengthen Canada's agreement on internal trade to eliminate provincial territorial trade barriers and facilitate the movement of people, goods, and services, including the professions and skilled trades across Canada. You know what? Why have we done this already? That one particular thing. Why have we not done that yet? Why is it that there are internal barriers to trade? It's all one country. Yes, there's provincial jurisdiction. I understand that. But when you have, why is it that in Alberta, a plumber has to be certified in the province of Alberta, but that certification doesn't carry any weight in Ontario? At least I think that's the way it is. Skilled, there's skilled trades where that's true. I know that for sure. If the plumber's not one of them, but it is, is figuring out which way water flows different in Alberta than it is in Ontario? And what about Newfoundland? Does their water start running half an hour earlier than everybody else's? That's a joke, folks. Anyway, so I just wondered about that, and I'm wondering about it out loud. Okay, under the heading of uh, regulations, enhance the effectiveness of the Major Projects Management Office, the Northern Projects Management Office, and the National Energy Board, and Canadian Nuclear Safety Commissions on Environmental Assessments and Approvals. Roll back federal development of electricity generation in order to facilitate a return to cheap baseline power. Pursue clean water in waterways that fall under the federal jurisdiction, especially in respect of sewage treatment and effluents. Now, stop for a minute and think about that. That is not a lot of water courses. Most water courses are within uh, territorial, uh, the territories of the provinces. It's only when they cross provincial boundaries that they become federal, if I understand it right. So rivers like the St. Lawrence would be federal. Uh, the Mackenzie, does that? I'm trying to remember if the Mackenzie, I don't know. I, I can't. The Columbia, I think, is all B.C., but and the Bow River is all B.C. Uh, the Nipigon, the Al, not the Albany, um, just running through the, my head. But the St. Clair River would be federal, as an example, because it's on an international border. So there's, it's not like there's, you know, millions of miles. And this is something the NDP tried to fool people with uh, a year or so ago when they came out talking about, oh, the federal government's going to allow pollution in all our rivers and lakes. Uh, first of all, no, that's not what they wanted at all. And secondly, there aren't that many of them to begin with. So anyway, but that's, I think that's a good step in the right direction. Match the U.S. on regulations that affect Canadian manufacturers, producers, and service and service producers, um, this is not that's not written very well. Match the U.S. on regulations that affect Canadian manufacturers, producers, services, and consumers. Reference the Canada, 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 U.S. trade. So Canadian stakeholders are best positioned in the event of a trade dispute. Match the states on collection, harmonization, analysis, and publication of data affecting manufacturers, producers, services, and consumers. So Canadian stakeholders are best positioned in the event of a trade dispute. Under the heading of infrastructure, all publicly funded infrastructure should be pay as you go. Accelerate oil and gas pipeline approvals throughout the environment through the environmental assessment process, west, south, and east. Now, this I didn't know wasn't done yet. Complete the Gordie Howe Bridge at Windsor and Detroit as soon as possible. The Ambassador Bridge has been down there for years, and it is one of the highest traffic uh, border crossings, if not the world, then certainly in North America. The amount of business that goes back and forth through that tunnel and over that bridge is mind-numbing. You want to go and just blow your mind, sit down there to Tecumseh Avenue or on that corridor down to the Ambassador Bridge into the tunnel. Grab yourself a lawn chair, 
and a nice ice-cold pop and sit there and watch the trucks go by. It'll blow your mind how many of them there are. Just one after another, all day long, every single day. <clears throat> I know, I used to be one of them. Okay. Encouraging existing and new cellular phone transmission providers and ISPs to increase accessibility and speed and reduce cost to Canadian consumers. Now, how you would encourage them, maybe give them tax breaks, I don't know. I, I don't know how you would encourage cell phone companies and ISP providers to do that, but, okay, at least the idea is right, that... Let's help maybe by introducing more competition. Maybe that's it. Negotiate construction of a truck transport toll highway across the Niagara Peninsula. You can complete the twinning of the Yellowhead Highway across western Canada. All right. Um, yeah, you know what? The idea of a, of a specific truck highway has always, I thought, was a good idea. Uh, get the four-wheelers and the car and the truck separated where you can and allow them to move back and forth without bumping into each other because we all know who wins that fight. Okay, so that's the policy at, in its core. There's, if you want to read the whole thing, uh, it's on my Facebook page. I've posted it there, so you can certainly get to it and talk about it. Um, there's been lots of comments on it so far. So if you want to dive in, by all means, do that. Uh, I really encourage you to do that because it's, it's important. Um, I just haven't found anything that detailed um, as, far as, um, as far as an economic plan. Now, there's, like I said, there's things about it that kind of got to go, hmm, how's he going to pull that off? I don't know. But later on in the show, I'll tell you who that was. All right. Now, all right, there's a lot about Trudeau on tonight's show, whether I like it or not. And I don't, you know what? I, I don't like the man. I wouldn't spend any time around him if I didn't, if I, you know, it, it's... It's not that I want to talk about the guy, but he is the prime minister. And I think that this is getting to be um, beyond ridiculous. And one of the stories uh, in, this, in the news tonight is, is an Anthony Fury piece out of the Ottawa, Ottawa? Ottawa Sun. Okay, and that is dated today. And it's about how Justin Trudeau is playing fast and loose with the truth on the, on the international stage, misrepresenting what Canada stands for. Once again, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has misrepresented Canadian policy on the world stage. In the cover story of the most recent issue of the Bloomberg Business Week, Trudeau claims the former Conservative government advocated headscarf bans. That's simply not true. The PM tells the influential American magazine that the last election he was up against, during the last election, he was up against a government that ran on snitch lines against Muslims and headscarf bans and a fear-filled narrative that Canadians chose to reject. Look, that work that might work with some of your constituents in the country, you know, within your own borders. But when you step out on the world stage, I'm sorry, you have to tell the truth because there's none of that is true. It's a sloppy take that completely mischaracterizes the former government's election platform and sends a false message about Canadian politics to the world. No major political party in Canada has ever proposed a headscarf ban. The closest thing would be Quebec's failed Charter of Values, which would have banned the wearing of conspicuous religious symbols by public servants in the province. This would have, have, this would have applied to all religions. And I guess if I could sum this up, um, is by saying, in one way, I'm not surprised, because what you have, what you have um, really said is you have a man here uh, who has no honor because he can't tell the truth. 
And if you have no honor, why in God's name would you expect any truthfulness from him? Because this is just... The office of prime minister is the highest office in the land and one of the most respected in the world. At least it's supposed to be. Canada is one of those unique countries that does not have to swing a great big stick to get people's attention. We've been long considered a, a middle power, you know, someone who spends more uh, time uh, talking than shooting. Uh, we're great shots when we need to be, but we spend, we try to be, um, you know, uh, be the deal broker and so on, and our history reflects that. And that is damaged every time somebody like this bozo walks out onto the world stage because he just can't tell the truth. He can't even come close. He has his own little narrative, and he wants to run it, and he wants to spin it any way that makes him look good. It works at the U.N., but it certainly is no way for a prime minister to treat it to, um, to uh, what's the word I'm now, uh, to, to respond, to behave is the right word, um, on the world stage. Now, I'll come back to more Trudeau stuff in a minute, but we have a real problem here. And this is something that I've seen coming for a long time. And you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. But according to Census Canada, for the first time in uh, 2016, we have more seniors than we have children. Now you would think, okay, who cares? Well, I like to think that people listening to this show wouldn't say that, and they would probably say, wait a minute, because here's what happens. If you think about it regular, the population should reflect something of a pyramid where you have the broad base is the young population, and then as you move up, you begin to taper inwards from the from the points, and then you have you know the different the different age brackets until you get all the way to the top where you have the oldest the, centu the centurions and beyond, and that would be the very tip top of the pyramid, okay? Because that's the smallest group. So going from the largest group to the to the smallest group, but now we have a situation where it's you have more of a square than you do a triangle, where we have more people in the upper uh, part of the demographic than we do at the bottom. And when you translate that into what, well, how that affects us in the real world, you now are looking at a situation where we have people who are going to be depending on CPP, on more health care. There's a lot of costs to an older population. Now, I'm not faulting the over overpopulate the, the the elderly. That's not that's not their fault. You know, they're the ones who are saying, "Wait a minute." Uh, you know, I paid taxes all these years. I worked hard. I contributed to my government. I was a good little soldier. Where's my pension? I've been counting on that. I've been counting on the fact that we have universal health care, so that if I get sick in my old age, which most of us do at some point. You know, we have health issues crop up, whether it be bad back, bad hip, back, bad knee, different diseases, diabetes, you know, different things that come along as you get old, as your body starts to wear out, as you burn it up over time, there's going to be more health issues that come up for people who are older. And yet we have a problem now because we don't have our birth rate. Now, let's see what the, as a matter of fact, because the, the last number I remember was 1.47. And I haven't looked at it in a while. So Canadian, no, I can't spell. Birth rate. Let's see what it is right now. 
Oh, as of 2014, the Canadian birth rate was 1.61 births per woman. Now, in the States, in 1993, it was 2.02, and in 1993 that year, Canada had 1.7, and in China that year, it was 1.93. So, we are in, uh, we haven't had a birth rate of over two. Let's see when it tapered. I've got a little chart here. Uh, we stopped having, because you need at least two, okay, to carry your population forward so that this graph doesn't come back to haunt you. Since 1971, in 1972, it dipped below uh, two. It's now, It was 1.98 that year. Okay, as what that translates into is we have more people getting older than we have coming into the workforce. And if we don't have a good, healthy, uh, youthful population, who's going to take over the jobs to pay the taxes to fund all these wonderful social uh, programs that we have? Universal health care. Now Wynn wants to throw PharmaCare in there. I'll get into that in a minute. Just all kinds of more nonsense. Somehow, we have to be able to pay for all this. Nothing's free, no matter what the NDP tell you, no matter what the liberals tell you, and even some conservatives. Somebody has to pay for everything at some point along the line. So, who's going to do it if all the people... Why do you think... Why do you think it is? When you pull into a fast food restaurant or to a coffee shop, Half the staff is over 50. Do you think that Grandma Dynamite wants to be in there pouring coffee at 6 o'clock in the morning? She's in her 70s, and she's pouring coffee and serving donuts. She might want to do it. Maybe she's doing it because she's bored. But I don't think so. Certainly not in the vast majority of cases. She's probably doing it because she has to supplement her CPP. Because it's not enough to live on. Because we don't have enough people, young people, native-born Canadians. This is why immigration, the way we're doing it now, might solve a demographics problem from the point of view of people available for the workforce. But they bring with it so many other problems that it isn't worth it. What it boils down to is young Canadian families have to be encouraged to start having more than two kids. That's what it boils down to. Three would be fine. You don't have to have eight like some people I know. Okay, not everybody's called to have that many kids. I can see some people in a loony bin if they had five. But the point is we stop, we got to have stop having 1.61. you got to have more kids than that in order to be able to have a healthy population. And that would mean if we could get back up to two, and I don't know how you do that. I don't know. Perhaps just cutting taxes would allow people to be able to stay home and raise their kids and consider having three. I mean, what's wrong with having three children? Are you going to tell me you can't handle three? If you can handle one or two, why not three? If you space them apart every three or four years, once you get to the third one, let's say you had one child every four years. Okay, so that what's that? Uh, three children. So the, when the first one's 12, you have the last one. So now that 12-year-old can come back and help you with the second one while you take care of the first one or the most recent. 
And that 12-year-old learns how to be a parent without actually having to be one. So when the time comes for that child to be a parent, they already know how. There's no mystery. They changed all the dirty diapers. They've done the dishes. They've washed the laundry. They know what it takes to be a parent. And believe me, by the time they hit 16, they know everything about how to be a parent. So the point I'm making is there are benefits to having more than 1.6 children. The economic spinoff alone. Think about the population. Everybody's crying about making schools larger but fewer, right? Don't close my school board. Don't close my school. Well, we've only got it one-third full because it was built back in the 60s when there were millions of kids. We still had the baby boom going on. Well, now those numbers are declining, and schools are becoming empty. So they're, they're cutting the number of schools, cramming more kids into bigger schools, which I don't necessarily translate into better education, by the way, no matter how they dress it up. So, anyway, I do believe it's time to take another little break. I will uh, go and uh, let you listen to this, and I'll be back with more right after the Nick and Night Show. This is Late Night Council. Uh, this is bigger. This is very big. There's definitely something here. <laughs> okay. Hang on a second. I hit the wrong button. So I got to let it run its course. <sighs> it's been a night for buttons. You know, sometimes you just got to make a couple of mistakes to appreciate the nights when you don't. In the few seconds we have here, oh, we're almost done. I just, once this gets rolling, I have to let it play through. So hang on with me a minute. All right. Looks like we're almost done with that one. I can play the one I wanted to. Let's try that. Nick at Night is there a production of Council oh, Communications. No. Damn it. I can't. For 17 years, I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money. 
and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smoke. Okay. You know, there's some nights I just can't win. <laughs> I realized later I was hitting buttons. If you saw the setup, you know what I'm talking about. But there's a row of multicolored buttons here. And one row is for the beginning and the end of the show. The next row is the commercials. And the next row after that are the extras. And the row after that are the intros. And I just was hitting the wrong. Who cares? Just hit the wrong button. That's what it boils down to. All right. Anyway, got that behind us. That's what life's like. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so that's it. Uh, I was talking about children. The numbers, by the way, are 343-700-4390. Uh, long distance is 844-562-4766. You can reach me at Nick at night, Nick at LateNightCouncil.com. And you can also reach me via uh, Internet, uh, Facebook, or Facebook, I should say. Send me a message, and uh, I'll pay attention to that. And, key, and if there's anything comes up there, we can, we can communicate that way as well. So whatever way you want to think of uh, or want to take advantage of is fine with me. I would appreciate phone calls. That's fine. But if not, we've got plenty of content. Uh, let me go to this next one. And this one, you know something? I'm glad to see a school board with a spine. We have talked about this before, but let me make my point again. There are no more genders than two. You are born either male or female. Get over it. Okay? It's just the way it is. Like, I don't care if you go through the surgery, take all the hormones, and become the opposite sex. If they run a DNA test on you, it'll come back with whatever your birth sex was. So if you're an X and Y, guess what? You're an X and Y. If you're a double X... Guess what? You're a double X, and there's no amount of surgery is going to fix that. So rather than trying to re- reroute the plumbing, you uh, have to take people like that, and they need to go onto a um, onto a shrink's couch and deal with the inner problems that changing the plumbing won't fix. Like, why do you feel like you need to be a little girl? Why do you feel you need to be a little boy? Okay, instead of saying, well, here. Here's a scalpel. Let's help you with that. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is because there is a school board down in Niagara called the Niagara Catholic School Board that had canceled a touring play on gender identity. Thank God. Now, let me share some of this story with you, but notice the age of the kids that we're talking about here. The last-minute cancellation of a touring play called Boys, Girls, and Other Mythological Creatures at five Niagara Catholic District School Board elementary schools has the director and playwriter at a St. Catherine's Theater for Young Audiences seeking answers. He got one. It was two letters. No. What's he still looking for? I don't know. Carousel Players Artistic Director Jessica Carmichael published an open letter to the theater on the theater's website Friday after she did not receive a satisfactory or open conversation about why, over the course of 48 hours last week, the schools in question all developed scheduling conflicts with planned presentations of Mark Crawford's play about an 8-year-old named Simone, or Simon, who feels boxed in by the restraints of gender. This stuff makes me pull my hair out. 
I fear these cancellations may be based on misinformation grown out of fear, intolerance, transphobia, homophobia, and misgeny, wrote Miss Carmichael, posting a screenshot from Facebook posts where parents whose children have seen the show complained to taught kids if a boy plays with a dress, he might be a girl. Guys, this is the... There's none of this... You notice whenever these, these uh, progressives don't get their way, they throw a temper tantrum and start calling people names. It's a classic tactic, and they do it all the time. What I want to know is when are we going to say, yeah, okay, whatever, but you're still not, gonna do, you're still not doing it. Call me what you want, but you're still not doing it. Okay? You're not, we're not putting that play in our schools. You want to put that play out there and have people pay good money to come and see it? Good luck to you, but not in our schools. As a fully, this is going back to the, the school board making an answer. As fully as a fully inclusive and supportive Catholic board for all students and staff, decisions regarding offering presentations to students from community members are made upon individual considerations and reviews. Spokesperson Jennifer, Jennifer Pellegrini said in an email to the Globe and Mail, "We will continue to follow our process when presentations are offered to be delivered to." We, within our school communities. Now, this is for children from grades 1 to 4. So you're talking 6 to 10-year-olds. They don't even know who they are yet. And that's completely natural. A 6-year-old? A you're going to expose this to a 6-year-old? Anyway, to make a long story... Oh, yeah. Okay. Let me read you one or two more paragraphs here because I think it's relevant. Okay. And they uh, let's see, uh, boys, girls, and other mythological creatures, which is aimed at students from grade one to four, appears to be a new flashpoint in the controversy over the health and physical education curriculum in the Ontario Liberal government's change in 2015 to include concepts such as gender identity as early as grade three. Remember, this is the same doctrine or same. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, curriculum that was written by a confessed and convicted pedophile. It was written by a man who liked ha- who liked the idea of having sexual contact with little children. And we want this stuff in our schools. You know, this is something the press has fallen down on its face over. Why did they ever, never ask Kathleen Wynne when she was going to rip that curriculum up and start all over again? Because it came from the pen of a man who liked to destroy the lives of little children for his own carnal and base pleasures. Why did no reporter ever put that to her? Oh, that's not progressive. You're damn right it's not, and that's the whole point. This kind of progressivism we don't need. We don't need any kind of progressivism the way it's laid out today. Anyway, I I digress. Progressive Conservative Party leader Patrick Brown has changed his mind and said he won't repeal the curriculum if elected. Well, that's not new. But still faces backlash from some corners of his party and supporters. No kidding. Anyway, so Patrick Brown, this is the whole point with Patrick Brown is this is why he is not, uh, not fit to be leader of the Conservative Party of Ontario or the Progressive Conservative Party. Just these... This stuff just makes me want to pull my hair out. This is not suitable for schools. This, is, this isn't suitable for anybody. Anybody, like I said before, who did, and I'm, I'm not being hard-hearted or cold here. Look, if people are confused about their identity, then, yeah, they need help. I just don't think it takes anesthetic and, a, and 
eight hours in an o- on an operating table or however long these procedures take, along with months of hormone therapy. I just don't think that's right because that's not the root of the problem. Anyway, says Dr. Nick. Now, okay. One of my favorite organizations, and I mean this with all due respect, is our military. The men and women who join our military and offer up their young lives in defense of our country and our freedoms and the things that we stand for are certainly one of the highest, earn, should earn our highest respect, admiration, and support. Well, the liberals have been making a lot of noise after, over the last little while about how they want to, um, oh, what is the word? Support our military. Oh, they were going to remember when they said uh, with uh, the defense minister says, well, maybe 65 F-35s isn't enough. I thought, look, I don't agree with him on anything else, but he's right about that. And I won't run down the whole list of reasons why that's true. But 65 airplanes is not enough to defend Canada with and meet our NATO obligations. It's not even enough to do the first job, never mind both. You throw NORAD in, now you're really looking thin. Well, guess what? We have a situation here where Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan, I think that's how you say his name, who has confessed and apologized, by the way, for exaggerating his claim that he orchestrated much of the fighting in Afghanistan while he was over there. (laughs) That ain't true. You know, I've read enough different accounts and books and stories about what happened in 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 our time our, during the time uh, of our heaviest fighting in Afghanistan around 2007 2008 and so on in there when we were really slugging it out with the Taliban and I never heard his name mentioned once in anything I'm not saying he wasn't there I'm not saying he didn't participate but when you start talking about commanders in the field and planners and things like that his name never came up once So, in the normal vernacular, he lied. And many people are now calling for his head. It won't happen because a party of liars has no problem with keeping a liar in its ranks. And if you think I'm stretching that, just remember that the Minister of Science lied about whether or not they got a Nobel Peace Prize. That's just one example. Another minister lied about her country of origin. Now we have the Defense Minister lying about his role in Afghanistan. All this to lead up to this part. (sighs) Defense Minister to lower expectations for future military purchases. The Defense Minister said under pressure, is under pressure to deliver a new purchasing plan for big-ticket military goods and is preparing to lower expectations for the amount of cash available by blaming a former conservative government for leaving the Canadian forces with a multi-million dollar budget shortfall. You know what, guys? Whether that's true or not, blaming the other guy, you run out of room with that pretty quickly. Are you telling me that a year into your mandate, you just figured this out? What happened before this? Did you not bother to open the books and have an accountant explain it to you? Shouldn't that have been one of the very first things that you do in a minister in any portfolio? is sit down with somebody who can count beans and say, okay, what is the economic status of this ministry? Because I don't want to know what resources I have to work with. 
because finances is fertilizer. If you don't have finances, nothing happens. If you don't have money, nothing happens. You can write all the papers you want. You can come up and talk to the press till your face falls off. But if you don't have money to work with, you're out of business. So the very first job any responsible minister would have, I would think, is to get a handle on their finances and figure out what they are. It's a year, and you're just telling us now that the Tories left you with a, a, you know, a multi-billion-dollar shortfall. Whether or not the Tories are guilty, that that demonstrates nothing but incompetence to me. What did you wait so long for? Or did you know it and not want to tell us because the timing wasn't right? You couldn't get as much mileage out of blaming the Liberals or the Tories for something you've known for a year. Anyway, I digress. Anyway, um, he says that after a series of delays, the results of the Defense Policy Review are expected by unveiled and availed, unveiled in the coming weeks. Mr. Sajan, who apologized on the weekend for overstating his role as an officer in the war in Afghanistan, is now facing pressure to deliver on the Liberal Party's 2015 promise for a leaner, more agile, better-equipped military. <sighs> These guys, I'm telling you, if their lips are moving, you know they're lying. However, defense officials said the minister would clearly lay out to Canadians that he is facing budget constraints that go well beyond the expectations of most military experts. Yeah, you know what? Like I said, when it comes to finances, it's not military experts you want. It's financial ones. I mean, military, the, the people, let, let's face it. If I'm an admiral, I'm going to beg and plead and scream and scrape for every nickel I can get out of that defense envelope because I've got a Navy to run. If I'm an Air Force general, I'm going to do exactly the same thing. And if I'm head of the Army, I'm going to do exactly the same thing. So you're all fighting over the same envelope of money. So, of course, they're going to paint themselves in the worst possible light from a financial point of view. They want as many dollars as they can get. Anyway, so for him to come out and say this now, I think, is just incredibly rich. Now, with that said, let's figure this out. Okay, this comes from the Huffington Post. I want you to listen to this. Because the question then becomes, well, why don't we have enough money? Because one reason, and I know this is a rhetorical question. You all know the answer. The rhetorical question is this. Why don't we have enough money? Well, it would be partly because Mr. Trudeau has spent $5.3 billion, of which significantly less than a billion was spent inside Canada. $4.3 billion spent outside the country will buy you a lot of thanks from some organizations such as the UN from climate change conferences. That type of spending will also earn you a lot of selfies to top up your, pro your political profile, but in the end, it is our taxpayers footing the bill. I always wonder when such vast sums of money, in this case $4.3 billion, are handed out overseas by any government, not just this one, as to who is tracking it to see how it is being spent and if it is being spent properly. Governments rarely tell us what audit pro procedures have been attached to these funds. Spending priorities are always set by the Prime Minister. It is interesting to note that the $5.3 billion that Trudeau spent in his first 100 days almost matches the funds the Liberals under Paul Martin were going to spend on the Kelowna Accord to help our First Nations. The Accord, the accord under Paul Martin included $5.1 billion with plans for uh, education, $1.8 billion, housing, $1.6 billion, $400 million for clean water, $1.35 billion 
uh, $315 billion for health services, $170 million for relationships and accountability, and $200 million for economic development. Imagine if in Trudeau's first 100 days he had a different set of priorities and instead he spent his $5.3 billion on our First Nations youth and communities. What is the bet that, the, that in the coming budget our First Nations won't see a dollar amount that is anywhere near what Trudeau has spent outside the country in just his first 100 days? Now, nowhere near the, oh yeah, sorry. Perhaps Trudeau could have saved some of that $4.3 billion he sent outside he sent outside the country for for our seniors. It would have been nice to cut them a break so they can have a decent living after contributing so much to building this country that he has inherited. An increase in pension assistance would have been welcomed by many seniors. Again, it all boils down to priorities. Or here's another thought. Last year at UBC, uh, last year a University of British Columbia study noted that a national pharmacare plan would cost Canada about $5.4 billion. Almost the same as Trudeau's spending in his first 100 days. Does anyone think we will see such a plan in the coming budget? Probably not. Anyway, it goes on, but you get the point. And if you want to shift that over and say, okay, what in defense could you get for $5.3 billion? The answer is a lot. You could do all kinds of things with that money. The Army needs new trucks, tanks, and LAVs. The Navy needs new supply ships and needs new surface combat vehicles or vessels. The Air Force needs new fighters. It needs to replace the snowbird jets. I mean, that's a small, small expense when you consider it, but it is a national symbol of everything Canadian, is it not? And those snowbirds are 40 years old. They're a great jet, but like anything else, they have a shelf life, and it's time to update them. Yet nothing, nothing throwing money away with other countries. So, all right. So that's more on Trudeau. Let me shift over to Kathleen Wynne. And I will do that right after this break, because guess what? It's time for me to take a break and refill my teacup. You listen to this, and I'll be back in a moment. So Nick is reloading and taking a much-needed break. Not that he needs one, but maybe it's a good thing. So if you want to fire him off an email, just uh, send it to nick at latenightcouncil.com. That's simple, huh? Nick at latenightcouncil.com. Or better yet, call now. Hey, I know he could talk forever, but you know what? If you're doing talk radio, you'll love the calls. 343-700-4390. That's 343-700-4390 for the Capital Region. And if you can't get through on that line or you live far, far, far away, like we're talking about Alaska, 1-844-562-4766. That's 1-844-562-4766. Now, our call service is automated. You won't be talking to a live person until you're live on air. Don't sweat it. Just follow the prompts and while you're on hold, and, and, and you'll be fine.
Now, Nick at Night does not exist without advertisers. So if you want to buy time, you contact either myself, JC at LateNightCouncil.com, or you can contact Nick if you're more comfortable with him, and of course I certainly understand that. You can contact Nick at LateNightCouncil.com. The ads are like really, really cheap. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna love them. Okay, you're, you're, we've we've made them quite accessible. Feedback is always welcome. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. And thanks for tuning in. Now back to Nick at Night. You know when you put a plan in place that when your strongest supporter in the mainstream media is at, is at best lukewarm about it, it's probably not a good idea. Kathleen Wynne, well, the story headline in the Toronto Star, otherwise known as the T-Star or the Commie Star, depending on your point of view, uh, decided that the headline would read, One-Handed Applause for Youth Pharmacare Plan. Okay. Now... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> this is so obviously a vote grab it's it just blows my mind um even the star when when you hear this you'll understand they're lukewarm on this at best give one cheer for the liberals kathleen wins ontario government has finally bit the bu- bitten the bullet uh, on publicly funded pharmacare Their scheme to provide those under 25 with free prescription drugs isn't comprehensive, nor, in spite of Finance Minister Charles Sousa's boast, it's not exactly path-breaking. Saskatchewan already offers a similar, albeit less generous, drug plan to children children 14 and under. But it is a start. The plan announced in Thursday's Thursday's budget would allow an Ontario, an Ontario, Anyone in Ontario age 24 and under who needs prescription drugs for medical purposes to receive them at no cost. Unlike the province's drug plan for seniors, there would be no co-payment and no deductible. Unlike the drug plan for welfare, welfare recipients, the world, there would be no means test. Rather, like Medicare, it would be universally available and cover the entire cost of roughly 4,400 drugs. Experts can argue whether the Liberal Pharmacare plan is better or worse than that pitched by Andrea Horwath's Ontario New Democrats, but the NDP proposed a scheme that would cover everyone under 65, but only for 125 commonly prescribed drugs. All right, well, look, okay, enough, enough, enough. The problem with this, and the reason I call it nothing more than a, health, than a, than a vote grab, who is it targeted at? People 24 and under, right? 24, 25, doesn't matter. Yeah, 24. Um, in generally, I know there's an exception to this. Generally, who are the healthiest among us? The young. I mean, think about if you're my age, I'm 55. How is your health today compared to what it was at 25? Now, maybe you're an aberration, and man, you're healthy as a horse and strong as a bull. When at 25, you were 300 pounds and looked like a walking bowl of jello. Okay, maybe. But you must admit that's the exception of the rule. Most of us, myself included, were at the peak of our physical prowess at that age. When I was 24, 25, man, there wasn't much I couldn't do from a physical point of view. Like I could run, 
uh, do push-ups and all kinds of physical activity. I had boundless energy, just, you know, I was in the prime of my life. I didn't need much health care. Now, the Navy forced me to get health care. Like, I still have fillings in my head from when I was in the Navy because I hated the dentist. And the chief looked at me and said, Vandegrat, you will go to the MIR and you will sit in that dentist chair and you will take the dental care that the military provides for you. And if you don't, I will put you on charge. So I grumbled under my breath and I said, yes, chief, and up to the, up to the doctors I went. And I got great dental health care, no doubt about it. I mean, it's lasted me this long. Didn't mean I was smart enough to take it. But I and I had to be forced. But other than that, I mean, yeah, there was you know you get <laughs> and there were certain occupational hazards where you might want some a prescription of something like oh I don't know gravol because you were sick as a dog from the ship bouncing all over the place, you know smell of diesel fuel down in the boiler room where it's 110 degrees off off Jamaica somewhere, and you're just the last thing you want to do is move because you're sick and just you know. Your head's in a garbage can for four hours while you heave your guts, well, what's left, you know, dry heaving into a garbage can. You just want somebody to come along with a pistol and shoot you. Okay, at times like that, you want some medicine. Okay, you want some gravel. But other than that, there was very little call on sick bay. You had to, be, you had to have a damn good reason to go. So what, in other words, what I'm trying to say is young people do not need a whole lot of health care. There are exceptions, like I said earlier, but by and large, the youth among us are probably as healthy as any generation of youth has ever been. So this, and if Kathleen Wynne doesn't know it, she's a complete, well, okay, you get my point. She's offering them something they don't need, dressed up like the greatest thing ever. It's like giving a kid, uh, imagine this, it's Christmas time. And you've got a 10-year-old a kid, and you give them, wrapped up in a really cool box, an avocado. Now, maybe the 10-year-old likes avocados. But there's a, a video on, I think it's on YouTube. My kids make a joke out of it all the time. And the kid takes it out of the box and goes, oh, an avocado, great, and rolls it right out of their hands into the garbage. <laughs> that's kind of the same thing that's going on here. Offering something they don't need as if it was the most vital thing in their lives. While denying it to a whole section of the population. And I'm not, I'm not for social health, socialized medicine, but we have it. And there's nothing I can do about changing it. So if you're going to spread the money around that like that, don't you think the seniors need a bigger break than somebody who's 24 does? Somehow that just, it's a head scratcher. And Kathleen Wynne is de so desperate to find votes that she figures if she offer this, it's not going to cost her much because there won't be much demand for it in the first place. I can hear the young kids, oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, okay. All right, I'll take that. Because maybe, maybe one of them will get sick. Stuff happens, you know. But they're just going to hand it out. They're just going to, hey, you know, if you need a prescription, come see me. Well, what would I need a prescription? No, you never know, just in case. We're here. We care. We love you. Don't forget to vote for us on Election Day. That's what this all boils down to.
and it is egregious, and it is disgusting. And it's another – what this is is the first step as well. And there was somebody who posted this on, on my Facebook page and said, this is just another step towards complete pharmacare for everybody all the time everywhere. Because they know if they try to bring it in all at once, no one would buy it. They, they, they understand that this would bankrupt the country, certainly the province, because we just can't afford that. We just can't afford it. If you think waiting rooms are crowded now. Anyway. So that's my take on that. I'm curious to hear what you say. Uh, 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. You can also send me a message over on Facebook if you like. Um, Just let's see. Yeah. Oh, look at that. Okay. Anyway, uh, you can certainly send me that way. I'd be glad to take any messages or let me check the inbox over at the mail side. No, that's uh, not that. Okay. So if you want to send me a note to Nick at night at CFRA.com, CFRA, uh, latenightcouncil.com, please do so. And I'll certainly be glad to engage with you that way as well. All right. Moving right along, we have this national, uh, let's see. Oh, yes. Oh, I forgot. There's a post story in the National Post dated yesterday. And the headline is National Security Committee recommends watering down laws on terrorism, peace bonds, and propaganda. They're softening our anti our anti um terrorism laws, or they want to. And you know it's to the National Post's credit, they have a picture of that sh- shooter, um I forget what his Muslim name was. It's funny how they never used that, you know. The guy was a, was a convert to Islam. And when you convert to Islam, apparently you change your name. But they have his white Anglo-Saxon name, or in this case, French. Michael Zihef Bibo uh, had a Muslim name, but nobody wants to use that because that would tie him to Islamic terrorism, and we can't have that, even though the guy was an Islamic terrorist. So let me share with you just a couple of paragraphs to give you the flavor. The Committee of MPs reviewing Canada's national security policies called on the government Tuesday to loosen anti-terrorism laws concerning propaganda and the advocacy of violence. The report by the Standing Committee on Public Safety and National Security recommended narrowing the definitions of terrorism, propaganda, and what constitutes promoting terrorism. Currently, a judge can order the seizure of propaganda that advocates or promotes the commission of terrorism in general. The MPs want to limit that to materials that counsel or instruct the commission of a terrorist offense. A section of the law that makes it illegal to advocate or promote terrorism in general should be changed by removing the words in general according to the committee chaired by liberal MP Robert Oliphant. In in a a dissenting report, the conservatives objecting to the proposal argue that to tackle radicalization on the internet, promotion and advocacy of terrorism in general needs to remain an offense under the criminal code. So they want to leave it a little broader uh, the, the conservatives want to leave it a little broader definition, and the liberals want to water it down by narrowing down the definition. And Now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Normally, I like being very specific, especially when it comes to the powers of the crown. But let's face it. This particular version of the crown won't even use the word Islamic terrorist. 
They'll use lone wolf attacks. They'll use lunatic gunmen. They'll use all kinds of different anything but what everybody knows to be true, that this slug, this thug, this, this uh, I can't even describe the kind of, the, the guy that killed the um, Corporate Steel on the uh, war memorial steps, then tried to, uh, was killed by our sergeant at arms in the parliament buildings. They want to describe this guy uh, as anything but Islamic terrorism. And then you have Qatar Abdul, who was part of the uh, Ontario 19 or the Toronto 19, who wanted to blow up Parliament and decapitate the Prime Minister. Remember that? The guy was a freaking terror. Is a is a terrorist. The fact he wasn't successful doesn't change the fact he wanted. He was trying and was a legitimate attempt, and the RCMP stopped him. I think, if my memory serves right, he had a whole skid about 2,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer. Mix that with diesel fuel, and you've got yourself one heck of a bomb. So, but no, we we can't be too, we, you know. We, so, in other words, in the, in cases like this, having the powers a little bit broader, I think, isn't necessarily a bad thing. There are some times when you have to do that kind of stuff, and to watch these guys water down and limit our ability to go after people like this, man, it's tough to take. All right, now. This story somehow slipped my attention. It's been up for mm, over a year. And my good friend Dave pointed it out to me on Facebook. Thank you, Dave. I didn't notice the date, but so I don't know if this is actually taking place or not. Uh, you know what? I'm just going to skip it. I'll, I'll save it if I, if I need it later. I'll bring it back. Uh, come to the top of this one here. Oh, yes. Back to Trudeau again. Okay. Our boy king has decided that uh, being available during question period is just too tough. He just, he, you know, he wants to be transparent and he wants to be accountable and all that stuff, but on his terms. He doesn't want to show up any day except Wednesday to answer questions. No more Fridays for the Prime Minister in the House of Commons. I mean, God forbid he actually work a work week like the rest of us do. Nope, 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 that's not for him. Okay. So the package of parliamentary reforms is from the National Post and this, oh, it's Ottawa Citizens, sorry, uh, posted uh, today, yesterday, sorry. Is it second or third? Second. Third. Okay. So it's yesterday. So the package of parliamentary reforms the Liberals were preparing to ram through over opposition objections will long, no longer include measures to automatically curtail debate on government bills or limit speeches in committee or shutter parliament on Fridays. Instead... House Leader Bardis Chagger informs us the government will simply invoke time allocation, curtailing debate, not automatically, and across the board, but one bill at a time more often. So, in other words, they're only going to give the opposition so much time to critique a particular bill. So what's the difference? Either don't ask questions or cut back the time you can ask questions because you wouldn't want to hear from those nasty opposition folks if they were allowed to question you at length on your policies and just instead of just ask a couple of opening questions and say, oh, oh, sorry, out of time. Oh, no, got to move on. Got uh, nothing left to see here. You know, don't don't look over here. We're, we'll just we're, we'll take care of the rest. It's thanks for the input. Isn't that the same thing? So. All right. And let's see. 
Well, of course, when your notion of when your notion of parliamentary reform is things that will make it life easier for the government in a system that has no equal in the democratic world for executive control of the legislature, when the problem you think needs fixing is not the inability of people's of the people's elected representatives to hold the government to account in any meaningful way, but the government's inability to speed through whatever legislation it likes, then, of course, that must be the inevitable result. Only let us have none of this nonsense about governments having no alternative but now but to use time allocation or that it needs to or that it regrets in any way, uh, in any sense, but a permanent system of legislative programming as originally proposed would have spared the bother. It is doing so not because it has to, but because it wants to, which was the point from the start. Okay, now, uh, what is Andrew Coyne. Okay, he goes on to say, to point out in the article what they should have done if they were truly interesting, interested sorry, in reforming the parliament. To make it more democratic. Remember, they want it to be open and transparent, right? Well, this isn't even opaque, what they want to do. You can't even see through it, okay, which is the whole point of being transparent. All right, now. So this is what Andrew suggests would be a, would be a package that you would say, okay, this is a good reformation of Parliament. What would a package of reforms look like that was genuine, genuinely intended to make the government more accountable to Parliament? It would start reasonably enough by reducing the powers of government over Parliament rather than allow government to decide when debate had gone on long enough. For example, it would assign that power to the Speaker. As the Speaker, in the best entrance, in the best of the government's current proposals, would be empowered to divide omnibus bills into separate parts to be voted on separately. Or perhaps it would be applied to the current, uh, to the current such exercise, the budget bill. Rather than give the government sole power to decide when to prorogue the House, it would make such decisions subject to a vote of the Commons with a supermajority required to ensure bipartisan support. The current proposal is merely that the government should be required to declare its reasons. A, simpler a similar constraint might be imposed on its power to dissolve House. We might also place limits on the confidence convention under which the government can designate any bill it likes as a confidence measure, the gun at the head of a at the head by which governments ultimately ensure compliance. I say government, but of course I mean the Prime Minister, whose control over any government is near absolute. So a genuine reform plan would also reduce some of his personal prerogatives, such as being with the number and range such as beginning with the number and range of offices that are his sole purview to appoint, to be doled out as rewards for obedience. Notably, it would also have the size of cabinet and with the number of parliamentary secretaries assigned and with it, the number of parliamentary secretaries assigned to each minister. So he's cutting the prime minister's powers is what he wants to do. And that's what he's saying. You want to make a serious change, a positive change to the way the parliament is run? That's what you do. You don't cut back on the legislative power. You cut back on the prime minister's power. Say, you're not going to get to appoint everybody. You're not going to get to have ultimate power with no accountability. Because that's what Trudeau really wants. Everything is about him getting his way and running roughshod over the competition. He just isn't interested in anything anybody has to say if it doesn't perfectly agree. No, you know what? I'm not going to go there. I was going to say it's just like Kim Jong-un, but I won't say that um, because it's <laughs> Kim Jong-un is a complete and utter – well, I wouldn't put Justin Trudeau on that level. Let's put it that way. 
I don't like the guy, but he is prime minister and he was democratically elected and he is not the same thing at all as that lunatic running North Korea. All right. Speaking of North Korea, about a week ago, I think it was last week on last week's show, I brought to your attention a story about the Chinese military or what's called the PLA, um, People's Liberation Army. I don't know how you can liberate people in a communist country using the army that is used to control that country, but I digress. Uh, and I mentioned the fact that those 150,000 troops and all their equipment were there not to rush into the aid of the North Koreans should they suffer attack from Western powers, but to make sure the North Korean population stayed in North Korea. Well, it seems my uh, estimation, and I will admit it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out, but I was right. Okay, this comes from uh, South Korea Times, I think. Yeah, the Korea Times, the story out of that, and it's written by some guy we've never heard of called He Han Su. Chinese soldiers stationed along the North Korean border are learning Korean in case North Koreans cross the border to flee any U.S. attacks, according to a Japanese news outlet Tuesday. The Yomiuri Shimbun said the soldiers are memorizing phrase such as, phrases such as stop or don't move or I'll shoot. In Korean, citing sources familiar with China's People's Liberation Army, the PLA is teaching Korean soldiers, Korean two soldiers near the North Korean border, in case North Korean refugees start flocking into China, if a military conflict arises between the U.S. and the North. Korean lessons are known to be happening throughout the Chinese North Korea border, given by ethnic Koreans living in China as instructors. The PLA has been on its second highest alert since April. Uh, <clears throat> which is implemented when a direct military threat is imminent. Yeah, they obviously, like I said, you don't have to be a brilliant military strategist to figure that out. I think it's um, um, pretty obvious why the Russians, or the Russians, the Chinese are there, and it's to make sure that they don't end up having to feed millions of starving North Koreans uh, because they, they simply uh, don't want to probably don't have the resources to take that on and is one of the few checks and balances, actually, that is keeping um, North Korea from, uh, the West from attacking North Korea because if, as I said before, uh, they actually win that war, well, there would be no doubt, I don't think, about the outcome of the war, but uh, if the West actually got into a military dust up with North Korea and and uh, the, the results were as predicted, then you've actually lost the war because now you've got how many more millions of people to feed? Clothe, shelter, provide basics, all the basics, because they don't have them. They don't have them. So it'd be like what happened in East, between East and West Germany when the wall fell on steroids times 10. And that very nearly bankrupted uh, West Germany. When all those East Germans came over and needed to be, you know, propped up and, and resettled and all that stuff, and East Germany had to be put back on its feet after 50 or 60 or 70 years of communist rule. It's just, it was a mess. So there's a huge economic cost to winning that war, and... Nobody so far seems to want to pay it. The only person who seems to uh, be willing 
to confront North Korea is, uh, well, there's two countries, Japan and, and the United States. So, all right. Now, there was something else. Oh, it's getting interesting in France. Uh, first of all, there was an article out earlier this week, and it said that Le Pen was beginning, had about a nine-point lead over Marcon. And Le Pen is who they label as their right-wing radical because obviously they don't like her. She wants to take France out of the European Union. She wants to do... She sounds a lot like a... She's using the same kind of language that Trump did. I'm not saying she's a, tr she's a Trump, but she's using... She wants to make friends, France for Frenchmen again. She wants to um, uh, get control of their borders back. Uh, you know, she wants to reestablish France as its own country. And this progressive elite over there are not interested in that. They just don't want anything to do with revitalizing France. And with that, I'll take a little break, and we'll come back with more right after this. General Manager and CEO of the Greater Ottawa Truckers Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area, and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario, and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck, so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night, and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. Let's take a phone call here. Phone calls are always more important than bumper music. Let's see. Hang on there, caller. Uh, there we are. Hello. Who am I talking to? You're welcome to that, the Nick and Night Show. That, that is until he gets on the air, right? It's Mike. Oh, hey, Mike. <laughs> oh, no, don't worry. Um, anyway, what? <laughs> you know, as far as, you know, John, John has missed the button many times. He has this great opener, and then I've got to tell him, John, John, you didn't hit the button. <laughs> oh, man. so disappointed. He's crushed. Well, you know and one funny? night in the other studio, he actually pulled out the wrong wire. And, I mean, you're talking in that studio, there were hundreds of wires and trying to figure out which one he pulled. Oh, man. Well, I was, I, I heard this uh, message go off on my phone, and then it happened again. I said, okay, somebody's trying to reach <laughs> me about something. So went, that's when I took the commercial break, and I looked at the phone and went, oh, no. So it took me a second to figure out which button, and then I saw it, and I thought, okay, way to go, Ace. He's blue of 15 well, minutes. It's, it's, hey, you guys are doing good. Like I, I understand how hard it is to run all the buttons here when you're so not used to doing it. it I mean, it is 
complicated, and it is so easy to miss one little button. It's yeah, gonna it happen. Is, but oh well, that's you know what? That's the thing I like about uh, about talk radio is stuff like that keeps you honest. Well, and, and the one thing is, at least you guys now have control of your content, which is so much nicer. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, what can I do for you? What's um, on your mind? Well, I wanted to sort of change gears a little bit. Um, I, I'm watching this thing unfold with the uh, Republicans spending in the states. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is not because we so much give a crap about the, the soap opera down there, but it does reflect because it's, it's the same thing that's happening to us time and time again. And if we don't learn from what's going on there, we're going to repeat the same thing once again here. So you've got this big spending bill that has been uh, passed, I guess, in the Congress, and it capitulated every major platform plank that the Republicans ran on and, and literally gave the, the, the Democrats everything they wanted, and they basically caved on everything just to avoid this shutdown. And now they're out there spinning this as if this is some amazing coup uh, good for Trump and good for the Republicans and so on. And I'm telling you, the backlash is, is building on this, and it is going to be severe. It's not just people like Mark Levin calling them out. Rush Limbaugh, I listened to the interview with Mike Pence the other day, and Limbaugh's asking him, like, are you kidding me? Are you crazy to let this go through? Um, and unchallenged. And, and Pence just kept trying to sell it. And... Um, you know, now Ann Coulter is, is starting to lose it. I mean, she's one of Trump's biggest cheerleaders, so, I mean, it's, it's, it's big. You know, and, and, you know, then it's, the spin becomes, well, you know, it's not, it's not Trump, it's, it's the Congress. But keep in mind that Obama got all of his platform through with who? The Republicans in, in, in the House. And how did Reagan get all of his things through? The Reagan tax cut. That was with Democrats controlling the House. So, you know, he's not using his bully pulpit. That was what he was elected for, to be the bully, and uh, it's not happening. So one of the things that I, I took note of, Mark Levin was on tonight or before you were on, and uh, he, he made this couple of statements that I thought were kind of apropos for us. He says, rather than confront the left at the base of their arguments, Republican officials, and I'm going to include conservatives here in Canada, and, and by and large live in fear of principles they proclaim at election time but reject at governing time. And as a result, he says, they, they become accomplices to the will of their supposed adversaries who rotely repeat the propaganda of the Democrat Party and the progressive movement. And once again, I'm going to say the Liberal Party here in Canada. That definitely describes one of the problems we're facing federally and, and provincially. Well, you know something. Uh, for one thing, uh, the different one of the biggest differences between the United States and Canada is at least down there, there there is a right wing media that will hold people like Pence and Trump and and other Republicans uh, to account when they go off the rails. We don't have this is very true. We don't have that ability here. So. Congratulations to them for doing it. Like I, I would, yeah. This is why it's it's so vital for organizations like Rebel, uh, little shows like mine, uh, you know, to be on 
out there as sometimes the only voice that's, that's out there saying, hold it. What is? Look at how many times we've gone after Patrick Brown. I mean, I yep. went after him again tonight in a small way, but just about his fact that he's brought up the fact that the sex ed curriculum uh, he's vowed not to not to repeal, even though, although he doesn't say this, I do, it was written by a pedophile for crying out loud, and nobody wants yep. to say we can't have that. And then we're surprised. One of the anyway, go ahead. Now, now for those who are listening, who probably follow conservative media here and in the state, they're going to start to notice this question is becoming a, a, a catchphrase now: is what what is the point of voting Republican if the Democrats win their policies, regardless of when they're in power or not in power? And and that's becoming a mantra down there. And I'm telling you. I see the same thing here. I'm, I'm asking the same question for years now. What, what changes uh, happen when, you know, Margaret Thatcher called it ratchet conservatism in Britain, but I think we've gotten even worse than that, and I, I wouldn't even call it impotent conservatism. I, I would be questioning that there's even any equipment at all, well, the, the, which might explain why they're confused about bathrooms. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It's just I, but, I get I get tired of people who claim to be let's use the word conservative to cover Republicans in, in the states and those of us who claim to be on the right and champions of it, but when push comes to shove, turn it into they jellyfish. Back down. Yeah, they just turn into jellyfish. You know something is one of the well, and, and, and it's so bad here in Canada and it's so bad here in Ontario. They're, they're not even really pretending to be conservative. They're so afraid of it that they're trying to be progressives, too, and, and they make a big deal out of that. Well, I don't know if fear is the right to... word. I think they've bought into it. I, when I look at the PC no, yeah, material, totally, I agree. and when I look totally at Patrick agree. Brown, um, I don't see any fear. I see anger. I see disgust. I see a lot of things, but not fear, not yet. And because there's been nobody come along and really challenge him, for the for the crown, right? I mean, yes, he had to run a leadership campaign, but I mean, in the general population, the numbers right now—if we were to hold an election today, he'd win in a landslide and be prime and be premier. So he's not. And once at again, all. but once again, we'd be asking: Is he going to get rid of any of the things that we're against that Wynn did, or the NDP, or any of the big government additions? Is he going to roll any of it back? No. No, of course not. That's in what fact, I've been saying for months, is that he's nothing but win in a blue suit. I yeah, mean, there's it, no it, substantive difference between him and, and the liberal government of the day. Now, I wanted to contrast a little bit. I've been mentioning Coolidge, and, and I really encourage people to look more into Calvin Coolidge. This guy is such an amazing conservative. Uh, with his, Oh, he's something. You can find some of the serials Glenn Beck did on his glennbeck.com website. Um, they're quite good. Uh, anyways, Calvin Coolidge, just to give you a little sense of what he did uh, after the 1920 stock market crash in the States, which was worse than the 29, it would, they did go into a depression that was, by all measures, as bad or worse than the 29 one. Um, the reason Woodrow Wilson was still technically in office, the reason he didn't act was because he had been incapacitated by a stroke, and they were keeping that secret from the from the public. So... Not, he, he, they didn't act, and then Harding and Coolidge came in. Harding and Coolidge, in 1920, I believe, the federal spending was $18.5 billion. In 1921, the two guys, Coolidge and Harding, 
cut the spending from $18.5 billion down to $6.4 billion. Wow. Wow. In one cut. That's not a few jobs. That's not just a trim. $18.5 billion down to $6.4 billion in one year. And then... In 1922, they cut it again down to 3.3 billion. That's not that's not a cut. That that's a decapitation. That's not a haircut. That and then they then they did the the, the taxes. They cut the top income tax, the highest bracket, from 73 percent. Imagine that 73 percent on the highest bracket. I didn't know they, they cut the highest high. bracket down to 24 percent. And that is what kicked off the Roaring Twenties. They came out of a deep depression, and it literally exploded. It is probably, it is definitely the biggest growth period in the United States history, but I would, I would even argue it's probably the biggest growth in, Amer- in, in the world history. I, I defy somebody to show me where that kind of growth and that kind of prosperity, there, there's more patents than any other time in history in the 20s. You've got more inventions, more people moving from poverty into middle class and, and, and upward into upper class. People could afford cars. Radio was invented and, and became mainstream. Uh, talking pictures comes out. Like So many things that we... It, refrigeration, electricity, it's, it's mind-blowing. All of that because they got the way by a dramatic amount and they did not use the government power to interfere in the marketplace anymore they literally got out of the way well i've always said that the government would just get out of the way and allow the entrepreneur to do what he does best uh he could solve most of society's problems if not all now in solving one problem you create another that's true but you can't create the other one until you solve the one before it so there's always room for improvement and i've always felt that the best way to step forward is to let loose the reins of creativity and and just watch what the market can do, and you'd be surprised. But if they do that, oh, progressives lose. Something like their unemployment dropped to something like 1% to 2%. They, they literally, it's the lowest I think it's ever been. They literally declare that total employment. I was going to say, they, it's that, so close. They because you're always going to have an a, a unemployment rate because people are switching from one job to another and that kind of thing. You never right, get but rid of they, they, they classified it was so low, they classified it as probably the only time in, in American history it was full employment. Well, this is also That's part of the reason why they don't teach history. Now, think about it. Think about how we worry in, about maybe we'll trim 0.4% or 0.3% off the budget and we'll, not, we'll knock the tax down by a half a percentage point or something. It's so minuscule that nobody notices it feels any different. Oh, sure, it's big numbers off the federal government, but, I mean, and, and by the way, under that system that he did, the revenue to the government just exploded as well, once again, because they were the, it was the, just so much activity going on in the economy, it just generated unbelievable revenue. Well, that's, again, it's, it's the same story. Like, if you... Uh if you're driving a car and you put, if you follow NASCAR at all, you'll be familiar with something called a, a, a blocker plate. Now there's a name for it. A throttle plate where it restricts the amount of air an engine can take in and reduces its power. So if you have the economic version of that where you, you keep people uh, pinned back and, and unable to produce and do what they do best, then you're not going to see the full performance. So if you take that off and let companies and individuals 
do what they do best, and that's be creative and solve problems, you'll blow, it'll blow your mind what they can get done. Coolidge was unbelievably popular. Unbelievably popular. They were begging him to run again. He finally considered and did run one time. They, wanted, they were begging him to run for his second term, for his second term, because he takes over from Harding after Harding dies. Right. Um, but uh, he, and he wouldn't step, he, he stepped down, he wouldn't run. And unfortunately, it's Hoover who comes in, who's a progressive Republican, and he interfered just as Bush did with the, with the 29 crash. And of course, that led to the Depression and FDR, who came in with his great society and all the rest turned into a great depression. But it's, it's just amazing that we don't learn this guy. And he also took on, this is, very, this is where Reagan got the uh, how to deal with the air traffic controllers. When he was governor of Massachusetts in 1919, they had a big police strike, I think, in Boston. And his response was a very quick, very assertive, there is no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime, end quote. And that, just, he, he, he brought in the National Guard, fired all the police, and he crushed the, he crushed the strike with that. And he thought he was committing political suicide. Again, his popularity just exploded because people appreciate it. He may, he's just such a clear speaking person. It's very simple to the point. And he, even when he was explaining taxes to people, he would put it in terms they could relate to. How many days you're working for the government and so much better to have you working for yourself instead of for the government all the time. I'm surprised he wasn't assassinated. <laughs> well, I mean, this is what you can hear. You can sort of see why Reagan was so gravitated towards him. And I'll leave you one other quote from Coolidge, and I think this is really why he left the presidency after the one and a half terms. He says, it is a great advantage to a president and a major source of safety to the country for him to know he is not a great man. Ooh. And in my books, that's what makes him an awesome man. Yeah, that's, that's the mark of a great man. Yeah, he, he apparently he had gone to, uh, when he was mulling over whether or not he would run again, he had gone to uh, South Dakota to check out the new uh, Mount Rushmore that was being built. Right. And when he saw it, apparently the, the footage of him, his, the facial expression, he's literally disgusted with, with the, the display because in his mind, they were t creating idols out of these men, and that wasn't what it was about. So he really understood what what being in government was all about, not just the presidency, but any level of government. It's about service and not about you and not about being great or anything special. And, and while he did these amazing things in, in government by getting government out of the way, um, he did not use the power of government to control or hurt people. He literally got off their backs, and that's why he's so great. And he also recognized he didn't want to be that vain man. He didn't want to succumb to that. He, he stepped away and let somebody else take it. I just think that's such a role model. That's the kind of conservatism that I'm looking for. Is he still dead? Yeah. yeah darn it, we could so, use him. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, you can see that there have been people, obviously, who um, have gravitated to his mindset when you look at the likes of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and... and uh, you know, the real conservatives uh, that have been in high office. Uh, I would even in include um, uh, John Diefenbaker a little bit in that 
he wasn't I'm not trying to put him on the same level except to say that in his case we had a situation where he was passionately Canadian did not want to surrender Canadian sovereignty under any circumstances and would not bend on that point and it cost him an election it 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 just absolutely he would not bend on his principles and you know something and 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 there's something to be said for that. People admire that. Even if you go down with the principles this one time or, you know, you've got to stand for something. People respect that. Yeah, they do. And I think that was my point was that if you it's and I've always said that Ronald Reagan believed that if uh, this is who I am, this is what I stand for. Come and follow me. And he understood what that meant. And so did the people because it was so easily digestible, if I can put it that way. People understood that. And it seems, yeah. They just understood that when you have somebody who's willing to put himself out there like that, that's somebody worth following. And they did. And one of the things about, that strikes me about Coolidge when I check out his writings and I listen to his speeches, he is so straightforward, very plain. He's, it's very brief, very easy to understand. He's not trying to overpower you with a 30 minute crazy speech where you go to sleep two minutes in. Yeah. He just puts it in very plain language for anybody to understand. And it, that's what, and I think Reagan did that as well. I think Thatcher did that. That's, that's just sort of that mark of being able to boil it down for people to really understand and say, you know what, I totally get that, and I agree with it. And that's how they connect with people, I find. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. Mike, it's been a great call. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right. Yeah, that was a great call. Thanks for that, Mike. It's been uh, an interesting conversation, just to put it mildly. It, you know something? What One of the things I like about Mike's calls, I enjoy all, all the calls, but um, obviously the man has done some reading, and he is a classic example of somebody who learns from history. And this is why I say that teaching history should be a core of our education system from right from grade one all the way through high school, that you should learn your country's history and world history. to the Because, look, you could spend a lifetime, and there are people who spend lifetimes studying history because we're always making more of it. That's the one thing about it. But you should know, you know, um, uh, as far as ancient history, some of the great events like the fire the, the of the Alexandria Library, you should be looking at things like, you know, who the great uh, Roman leaders were, that all these big events that shaped our modern world, the great, great Greek thinkers and, and uh, you know, um, the philosophers of the Middle Ages and so on should know all that, but you should really have down pat your own country's history and who the movers and shakers were and why they shaped, you know, what what was going on at any particular time. Like, I often wonder how many fathers of Canadian Federation the average high school graduate could name. Just thought, yet these men are the ones who formed and shaped our country and gave us its original configuration. And it wasn't an easy process. How many of them even know where it was hammered out? Just, you know, this kind of stuff. Like, what was the great project that, that Sir John A. MacDonald, a father of Confederation, 
um, put into place as Canada's first prime minister to help bind the country together sea to sea? What brought British Columbia in to confederation? There was a massive project that did it. It's called the Canadian Pacific Railway, the great national dream. What was it that brought Newfoundland into the fold? You know, what happened with uh, the, the old Northwest Territories being broken up into the Northwest Territories in Nunavut? How did that all take place? If you don't know your history and you don't know who you are, if you don't know who you are, how are you supposed to identify and, and you know, understand why things are important, what things are important and how they impact you? It's You can't drive by looking in the rearview mirror all the time. But how many drivers do you know get into trouble because they never look into it? It's just one of those things that happens. And if you don't take a handle on it, if you don't teach it in the age-appropriate ways, you know, like what were the influences? Why did Canada get involved in the Boer War? Why were we involved in World War One? What were our great accomplishments? You know, what do we do during the 1930s in the Dust Bowl? How did the Roaring Twenties affect Canada? What about the 50s and the 40s? What was going on then? All these things, people should have at least some idea. And yet the vast majority of us can't think beyond two weeks ago. Just I'm just putting stuff out there, saying that these are reasons why people need to pay attention to what's happened in the past. You know, how many of you can tell you what happened in December of 1917 in Halifax Harbor? You know we still have an impact of, from that explosion today? There's still ramifications of that to this day. That's pushing 100 years ago. As a matter of fact, this coming January, wait a minute, no, I think we're already past the 100-year mark. January, December, yeah, that was last December, 100 years. In December of 1917 the world's biggest man-made explosion, the, uh, the collision of two ammunition ships in the narrows of Halifax Harbor leveled the city and set thousands of fires, killed hundreds of, killed tens of thousands of people. They heard the explosion in Boston. And Boston was one of the first cities to send aid. They sent a relief train with doctors and medical supplies. And every year since then, the province of Nova Scotia has sent a huge blue spruce down to the Boston Common where the mayors of the two cities get together to light the Christmas tree as a signal of this the bond between the two cities because of the Halifax explosion. How many people knew that? Some do, but not many. All right. Guess what, folks? That wraps it up for tonight. Thank you all very much for participating. I'm glad you're out there. I'm glad you were listening. Thanks for the phone calls and the emails and all that sort of stuff. I certainly hope that you'll join me again next week. Bring a friend when you come. And in the meantime, Good evening. God bless. Don't let anything disturb your peace. And may you have a fair wind and a following sea. I spent it in good company And all the harm I've ever done 
Alas, it was to none but me. And all I've done for want of wit to memory now I can recall. So fill to me the parting glass. Good night and joy be to you all. So fill to me the parting glass and drink a health whatever befalls. Then gently rise and softly call. Good night and joy be to you all. Of all the comrades that e'er I had, they're sorry for my going away. And all the sweethearts that e'er I had, they'd wish me one more day to stay. Yeah.